chapter 6, verse 1. When the ark of Yahweh had been in the land of the Philistines, notice the narrator calls it the ark of Yahweh, for seven months, that's a long time, the Philistines called the priests and the omen readers, saying, what should we do with the ark of? For the first time, the Philistines called it the ark of Yahweh, which means, do they see this as a specific God now and not just a magical box? Yes. The narrator is showing you. Now listen, seven months, and God has so quickly changed their theology. Israel was given the law, the tabernacle, and the sacrificial system, and God literally showed up to them and dwelt with them in the pillar of the fire and smoke, and they've had that for over 300 years, and their theology is all jacked up. This is a common theme throughout the Bible. That when God encounters Israel, they typically like have everything and yet have bad theology. But yet within weeks and months, the pagans adopt a better theology of Yahweh than they ever have. Verse 3, they replied, If you are going to send the ark of God to Israel back, don't send it away empty. Be sure to return it with a guilt offering. Then they, they will, we will be healed. And you will understand why his hand is not removed. And you will understand why his hand is not removed from you. Now, what's interesting is that this hand, in the Hebrew, it communicates the idea that Yahweh's hand was kabod upon the Philistines. That idea is being presented here. So that glory, heavy, honor theme is still continuing on. Now, notice that they're saying, we're going to make offerings to Yahweh. They're not making offerings in their temple they're going to put the offerings on the ark and send it back to Israel to Yahweh. So now they're making sacrifices and offering to Yahweh. And notice that they call them guilt offerings. So this isn't just a trophy offering. This is repentance. Now that doesn't mean they're all becoming Yahwehist and they're going to become this godly. But it does mean that they're acknowledging that we have to answer this God. They reply, the Philistine leaders numbered five. Those are the five major cities that I told you about. So they send five gold sores and five gold mice. There's your mice idea from the plague. For it was the same plague that afflicted both you and the leaders. So this is what they're going to do. They're going to get these sores. They're going to make a gold idol that looks like a giant sore. And they're going to get an idol and make it look like a mouse. And they're going to put it on this pilot up on the Ark of the Covenant. And they're going to send it back to Israel as an offering to God. Now this is a very common pagan way of thinking. If something is attacking you or something is afflicting you, it was not uncommon for them to take that thing and fashion it into an idol and offer it to the God. So if like, like somebody is physically is attacking you, you might fashion a little human as an idol or an, um, as a gold thing and you would put it in the temple. Or if like, I don't know, if a boyfriend just dumped you, you fashion a gold heart. Just different things. Like whatever you feel like is afflicting you or troubling you, you fashion it. It was their way of saying, I'm giving this to the gods to deal with. I'm giving my sores. I'm giving my rats to this god to deal with. And they, they very much viewed it that way. Now, this is obviously not godly in any kind of way. But yet what we're going to find out is God is going to accept this offering. Now, why would he accept this offering when this is not biblical in any kind of a way? Remember, God said no images. Yes, because that's all they know. Remember Tamar, who like got a part of the Abrahamic covenant in a really bad way by sleeping with her father-in-law? 
yet she's called more righteous than him because what do you expect a Canaanite to understand? Israel has done a really bad job of communicating good theology. They don't know any better. They don't have the word of God. They don't have the image of God. There is no teaching of the priests in their culture. So they're only doing what they know. What they know is this, but what's important is is that their heart is in it. Their heart is in it. And God accepts that. Now, once God teaches you and instructs you, then he holds you accountable to that. If you go out and like get your uh, girlfriend like roses for the first time ever, she might accept those roses and say, oh, that's so loving. But then she'll say, you know what? I really don't like roses. They actually make me break out. I'm allergic to them. I don't know if that's a thing. But then if you keep giving her roses, that's really insensitive. Israel, they are held accountable to all of the law because God has taught them. And now they know better. But the Philistines haven't been taught, so they're not held accountable to it as long as their heart is acknowledging the most important thing. Yahweh is the only true God. That's the important part there. And if Philistines do come into a theological understanding later, they'll be held to that. And we need to remember that. We need to remember that's how God dealt with Moses. When Moses was like, I don't, want, I don't know you, I don't want to be a part of you, and he was very gentle with them. But by the end of Moses' life, he was harsh. He was like that with Gideon. Gideon's like throwing out these fleeces and testing God and testing God and, God and God is dealing with all of it because he's young. And we need to understand that about the people coming in our church too. I think a lot of Christians, they look and they condemn and they judge non-believers when they come into the church, a, a biblically illiterate culture that comes in our church, and we judge them and condemn them, or we watch things on politics and the news and we're like, oh, those evil people, how could they be committing sins like that? God is going to judge you. And it's like... How would they know unless we teach them? And that's one of the reasons we've lost respect in our culture is because we've (laughs) judged and condemned a people that don't know better. That'd be like you going up to your four-year-old daughter and saying, why don't you know trigonometry yet? Come on. Or like when my one-year-old was drinking out of the toilet one day. You don't like go like, oh my gosh, you horrible evil person. Don't you know about bacteria and germs? No, she doesn't. But that's how we treat the culture. We condemn them like we think they should know all this stuff. God never does that. He never does that. He looks at the heart and he sees people who are seriously off on their theology. But the heart says, we're acknowledging you. And we're going to make sacrifices to you. God deals with the heart. And that's a very important thing that we're going to see here. Because that theme is going to become very prevalent as we go through Samuel. Yes, does behavior matter to God? Is righteous living incredibly important to God? Is there moral expectations and judgments for that? Yes. But at the same time, what God is mostly looking at, mostly judging, and mostly commending is the heart attitude. And he deals with you where you are, just like we deal with our children where they are in their development. And we should deal with the people in the church like that. We should deal with the people outside the church like that. And if we were more just, like Yahweh is, we might have better relationships with people on all the different levels. God is dealing with them based on their heart, and he is going to accept it. So they take up the ark of God, and they put on an ark, a cart, sorry, the ark on the cart. 
They put on a cart. Now, this is a total violation of the law, too. Remember, only the priests with poles are allowed to carry it. You're never allowed to put on a cart. But they do because they don't know. Now, they take two cows that have baby calves and they yoke them together and they're going to send them to Israelite territory. This is one final test. They're going to send it to Israelite territory and this is going to be a test. If the cattle go into Israel and stay there, it was definitely Yahweh's hand against them. But if the cattle turn around and come back to Philistine territory, then it was all coincidence. So even though they're superstitious and everything they see is definitely the gods, that doesn't mean they're just completely superstitious and everything. Now, why is this a great test? Well, because the, uh, the mother cow is going to want to return to her. Okay, good. Normally, when it comes to domesticated animals or farm animals, if you lead them into brand new territory, they will always come back home. And especially with young, there's no way they're going to leave their young by their own choice. So they're going to naturally, and you do not yoke the female cows together. You do not yoke animals that have never been yoked together, and you do not yoke animals that have young. They will not work as a team together. They one you it takes a long time to train animals to stay together, yoke together, and at the same time, cattle, cows um, that have young and they're separated from their young will fight against the yoke so much it's just completely a waste of time to even try to train them. If they work together as a team and completely abandon their young and go to a brand new territory they've never been before and don't come back, then they're violating in every way their natural instinct. Therefore, the logical conclusion is that it's supernatural. It's supernatural. So the men did as instructed, verse 10, and they took two cows that had calves and harnessed them to a cart, and they, removed the, um, they also removed the calves to their stalls. And they put the ark of Yahweh on the cart along with the chests and the gold mice and the image of the sores, and the cows went directly on the road to Beth Shemesh. Beth Shemesh is up here. Okay, right here, all the way north. So they're sending a long way away. About a day's journey. They went along, moving as they went, and they turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the leaders of the Philistines were walking along behind them all the way to the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the residents of Beth Shemesh were harvesting wheat in the valley when they looked up and saw the ark, and they were pleased at the sight. And the cart was coming to the field of Joshua, who was from Beth Shemesh. It paused there near a big stone, and then they cut the wood of the cart. Then they cut up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. So basically, the cows come, and when they get into the city, they just stop and they wait. So they then realize that this is an amazing thing that God has just done. So they take the cart, they cut the wood up to start a fire, and they offer the cows as an offering to God. The Levites took down the ark. Now, here's the thing you must understand. Beth Shemesh is also a Levitical city. Remember back in Book of Numbers and Joshua, the Levites were not allowed to have their own land, but God gave them cities scattered all throughout Israel and the 12 tribes, so that every tribe would have priests living among them and instructing them. So the Ark of the Covenant just not only violated the natural instincts of these cows and led them back to Israel, but it just happened to lead them back to a Levitical city as well. 
a Levitical city where they would know how to handle the Ark of Yahweh, and a Levitical city where the Levites actually were allowed to handle it. And so that's very cool there as well. So they, the Levites took down the Ark of Yahweh and the chest that was in it, which contained the gold objects, and they placed them near the big stone. And at that time, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to Yahweh. The five leaders of the Philistines watched what was happening and then returned to Ekron on the same day. These are the gold sores that the Philistines brought as a guilt offering to Yahweh, one for each of the following cities, Ashdod, Gaza, Ashkelon, Gath, and Ekron. The gold mites correspond in number to all the Philistines of the five leaders from the fortified cities to the hamlet villages to the greater Abel, where they positioned the Ark of Yahweh until the very day of the field of Joshua, who was from Beth Shemesh. So it stays there for a while. But Yahweh struck down some of the people of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the Ark of Yahweh. He struck down 50,070 men. And the people grieved because Yahweh had struck the people with a hard blow. Or, or in the Hebrew it says a kabod blow. Now, here's what's interesting. Israel disrespects the ark and they want to see what's inside it. And they open it up and God judges it. Because remember we talked. They know the law. And they're held accountable to the law. And what it shows you is that even after all of this, because we're told that the Israelites heard the rumors of what was happening in Philistine territory, but even after this, they still cannot revere God. And the point is that the Philistines have gained a greater reverence for God after all of this than Israel has after all of this. Now, that doesn't mean every Israelite is still disrespectful like this but there's still some who are. And then the residents of Beth Shemesh asked, who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God, and to whom the ark of will go from here? Basically, their response is, who can stand in the presence of God and survive? Who is worthy to come in the presence of God? Fast forward, later we're going to talk about another incident where David is going to bring the Ark of Yahweh into the city of Jerusalem in the wrong way. And his people are going to die. And David is going to say, who can stand in the presence of such a mighty God? This means the narrator is intentionally asking that question. Who can stand in the presence of a mighty God and survive? And the answer is, no one. But, as we keep reading, we're going to find out that some can so they sent messengers to the residents of Kirith Jerem, saying, The Philistines have returned the Ark of Yahweh. Come down here and take it back home to you. So the people of Kirith Jerem, another Levitical city, came and took the Ark of Yahweh, and they brought it to the house of Abinadab, located on the hill, and they consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of Yahweh. And nobody dies there. The same thing is going to happen with David. There are people who are going to die in Jerusalem. He's going to send it to somebody's house. Obed the Edomite. And in Obed-Edomite, he's going to take the ark into his own house. And he's not going to die. In fact, it's going to say, and Yahweh blessed them all the months that the ark was there. And the answer is, one way, who can stand in the presence of Yahweh and survive? And the answer is, no one. But then in another sense, the answer is, but those who humble themselves before Yahweh. Those who acknowledge that Yahweh is the true authority. 
the true sovereign king. Those who lower themselves. And what you automatically have here is once again, we're tying back into Hannah's song. Hannah's song. That those who are prideful and arrogant, God brings down. And those who humble themselves before Yahweh are weak in spirit and meek of heart. God lifts them up into his presence. Who can stand in the presence of Yahweh? Nobody of their own righteous acts. But the one who has a heart that is repentive and humble, those can stand in the presence of God. And even though Steven Spielberg completely got it wrong in Raiders of the Lost Ark, where it was a magical box that just killed people, in some ways he got it right in The Last Crusade when Sean Connery, his dad, said, who can come before God? Only the penitent heart. Only the penitent heart. Remember that scene? <laughs> when he got to go to presence? And he got it. And, and he treated the box as a magical thing in the first movie, but in the, the third movie, Steven Spielberg was so far away from Christianity. But, but at least he recognized that the heart was what mattered. The heart was what allowed them to get in the presence of God. And that's the message here. It really doesn't come down to these little behaviors that we call sins and all that kind of stuff. Those are wrong and they're sinful and they separate you from God because they they break your relationship with people and they break your relationship with other God because it hurts people. But ultimately it comes down to the fact of do you enter the presence of God? Do you, you conduct yourself as a Christian in an arrogant, prideful, haughty kind of a way? Do you think, look how gifted and skilled I am? And man, there's no way this is going to be done right unless I take over. And if you, if you want it done right, then do it yourself. Or if first you fail, then try, try again. And there's a good thing to that. But a lot of times it's crouched in there, I will get it. Or do you constantly come before people in a humble way? You present yourself before God like, I am a broken sinner. This is the parable that Jesus took of the, told the Pharisee and the tax collector. When you walk into the church, do you think, wow, this ministry is going so great because of me? <laughs> and believe me, that creeps in your mind. Everybody who's ever been in ministry, who's ever done anything, it's, and especially when people like you did a great job, it is hard. We are prideful, arrogant people. It's hard to not think that way. But do you allow that to grow, or do you check it and surrender it to God and humble yourself? And this is going to be a constant theme all throughout Samuel. I mean, it's kind of been there and here in the different books, but Samuel's going to beat this hard. That true righteousness does not really flow from our behavior because none of us are righteous. None of us can behave correctly. But true righteousness is those who humble themselves before Yahweh, completely surrender and say, I can't do it. There's nothing in me that's worthy to come into your presence. Only by your grace. And I give you what I have. Do with it what you can. And if you have that kind of heart, then you are supple clay in God's hands that he can fashion you into a righteous, godly behavior of a man or woman of God. But too often we try to get our behavior right and yet our heart is not. But it's actually the opposite. You get your heart right and God will fashion you and renew you and transform you into a righteous, obedient person. And this is the message of Samuel. We've seen it with Hannah. We've seen it with Eli, the sons. We've seen it with even the Philistines. We've seen it with the people who had the audacity to look into the Ark of the Covenant. We're seeing it with Samuel. 
And this is a story of not bad behavior and good behavior. This is a story of those who humble themselves and those who don't. And it all goes back to the garden. What was the sin that Adam and Eve committed? Not bad behavior, but that they chose autonomy. They decided that what I think is right is actually better than what God thinks is right. And that was the sin. That's the heart. And as a church, as a people, as we address the people growing in our church, as we're discipling people, as we're approaching the people from the world, as the people of the world come into the church, we need to constantly remember that the behavior is not the primary goal. The primary goal is the heart. Because lots of people have really nasty hearts, but they've made themselves look really good in their behavior. And lots of people have been struggling for a long time with certain addictions, but their hearts are so humble and, and broken for God. And we're focusing on the wrong things. And that's the message that God is going to make. And this is going to come to a climax with David. When, David is going to, when God is going to look at Saul and say, I reject you, Saul, but there's a man that I've chosen who is a man after my own heart. And then you read David, and behavior-wise, he's a scumbag because it's about the heart. Now, once again, don't mishear me and say behavior doesn't matter and forget what they do because if you completely don't care about your behavior ever, then your heart probably isn't right. And this is what God is saying. We know this, but this is why Paul says that he preached the gospel to those who believe. Because no matter what we know, we need to constantly remind ourselves of this because it's so easy to get wrapped up in behaviorism. It's so easy to get wrapped up in rules and laws. It's so easy to start becoming controlling and prideful and arrogant and not even know that it's happening because God truly has blessed us and is using us in amazing ways. And if we don't remind ourselves of this, if we don't pray, test me, O Lord, and see if there's any offensive way in me and anxious thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting, then we'll end up like those people that end up falling and we're like, how could they fall? They were so good at the beginning. Or why is it that I'm so disconnected from God now after all these years? We need to guard ourselves. And we need to say this stuff to us all the time. And these stories are powerful. And remember, these aren't just stories. These are theological messages to us about who God is and who we are and how we can know him.